Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let's bow our heads together before we get into God's word to ask his guidance and direction. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word, that it is not the word of men, that it is the expression of your thinking from eternity past, It is described in 1 Corinthians as the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ. It is given to us in ways that indicate that it is indeed your word and not the word of men. And that as it was revealed by God the Holy Spirit through the writers of Scripture, so we have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us and enabling us to understand that which he has revealed. That doesn't mean that it comes quickly or easily, but that he works in and through our study to come to a greater knowledge and understanding of that which you have revealed, to challenge us, to convict us, to approve us, to instruct us, and to give us guidance for and training in righteousness. So, Father, we pray that your word would uh, challenge us today as we study it, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're continuing our study in this opening paragraph, and today we're looking at the worthy walk as it is described by terms we find difficult to really understand, humility, love, and unity. This is difficult for us basically because every one of us not, no exceptions. There's not one person in this war room that isn't struggling with the corruption of your own sin nature, which screams loudly in your soul that it's all about you. As mine screams that it's all about me. The sin nature is totally focused on self-absorption. It, this is goes back to the original sin of Satan in Uh, heaven in eternity past where he stated his uh, illicit ambition to be greater than God by five statements, each one of which began with the phrase, I will. At some point in his mental attitude, the focus shifted to him. He wanted to be the focus of attention, not God. And that's the essence of all sin. It's rebellion against God. It's the desire to accumulate to ourselves the glory and the recognition that should be due to God, focusing on us as a creature as the centerpiece of our lives. And this is just the opposite of what God intends. But in order to 
followed these commands that we have in Scripture related to being humble, uh, being gentle. We have to really work with that word a little bit because it doesn't sound quite right to our ears, neither does humility. We tend to think of humility as just being a doormat so everybody can walk all over us and abuse us and take advantage of us and has nothing to do with that. And then we have to love one another. We struggle with that. We want other people to love us, certainly. But this loving other people, well, Lord, you got to realize some of those people aren't very lovable. You know, it's about all I can do to stay in the same room with them at times. I would wish to avoid them. But that isn't what Christ did, is it? When we were obnoxious to him in the corruption of our sin and rebellion, he died on the cross for us, and that's the standard. So next couple of lessons are going to be dealing with these particular issues. So just by way of review, as we're looking at these 12 paragraphs of this second section of Ephesians, uh, we're going to focus just on this first paragraph, which focuses on walking in unity. Remember the first section, chapters 1, 2, and 3, were all about the wealth that we have in Christ. And on the basis of understanding who we are in Christ and all that God has provided for us, the second section talks about how we are to live. And so the, this is all under the metaphor of walking. This is the picture of how we conduct our lives, how we live our lives, the standards that we have. And so the first part of this section is walking in unity, and that's Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And then the next talks about putting on the new man, a difficult section for some partially because of awkward translations, but that is the idea. We are, we have already put on Christ, as we'll see this morning, but we are also commanded to put on the new man, and the verb there indicates putting, like you put on a set of clothes. So that's chapter 4, 17 down through 24, and then there's more of a negative in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, which focuses on not grieving the Holy Spirit. And then there's just a whole list of our favorite sins there that we indulge ourselves in at one level or another, and it grieves the Spirit. And then we get into chapter 5, which talks about walking in love. So we're in this first section still, only in the second and third verses uh, unpacking all that is indicated here by the Apostle Paul. So we look at this, and I've given you sort of an updated uh, translation. This is sort of an amplified translation to help us uh, reflect on what we have learned. begins with a statement that is a conclusion, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord strongly urge you to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the exalted position to which you were summoned. And as I've pointed out before, the first part of this verse, uh, this section, verses 1 through 3, really summarizes and focuses us on what will be the main topic of verses 7 to the end of the section in 
learning how to worthily walk with the Lord. And then 4 through 6 talk about what we have in common, every believer, the unity, the oneness that we have. And the command there is is stated in verse 3 that we are to maintain this unity. It is produced by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say create the unity. We are to maintain the unity. This is a unity that is ours positionally in Christ, and we are to maintain it. And that's the focal point of verses uh, five, 4 through 6. So just by way of review, the term there that is translated beseech is better understood in our language as strongly urge. It is It sets up a command that it gets further expressed by the infinitive to conduct your life in a certain way. Very similar in structure to Romans 12.1. Uh, which should be translated, I strongly urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Instead of just saying right off the bat, present your bodies a living sacrifice, by saying it this way, I urge you to do that, it sort of softens the command a little bit. But it's still a command. So we are to walk worthy as we studied, which has to do with conducting our life in a manner that is worthy of the calling. I talked about the calling last week, that this isn't just a reference, as some translations will have it, to to our invitation to trust in Christ. It is a reference to our new position in Christ, an exalted position that we have in Christ that gives us a new identity. And so we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of that new identity, that new exalted position to which we have been summoned. So I use this chart. The left side of the chart focuses on those things that are eternal realities. This is related to our legal identity before God. Nothing changes about these things. We don't experience it when we get saved. But nevertheless, it is something that is real. As we read the scripture, we discover that God did a lot of things for us at the instant of salvation, but we didn't necessarily feel any different. Just think about the thief on the cross. And he says to the Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is clear indication that he has come to understand that Christ was the Messiah and that he's trusting him. But as he hung there on the cross in incredible torment, he didn't feel any better because he had gotten saved. He was still in incredible, awful, horrific pain. A lot of people think that when you get saved, there ought to be some sort of emotional something or other, a rosy glow or whatever, that somehow you just feel uplifted and everything. And sometimes people do, but that is not necessary, and that certainly is no criteria for determining uh, the uh, efficacy of your faith in Christ. So these are the things that are ours in Christ, and at the instant of salvation, 
Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. So this is our new position in Christ, and so it's called positional truth. Sometimes it is referred to by the phrase uh, identity truth. Then we have the temporal reality. This is our day-to-day experience as we walk with the Lord, and when we are walking in the light, we're in the circle. We are being filled by means of the Holy Spirit as we walk by the Holy Spirit. When we sin, we're not walking in the light anymore. We're walking in darkness, hence we need to confess sin to be restored to fellowship. But we're really focusing on the left side of the chart now, that which we have in Christ and what we have learned in this particular uh, chapter, the uh, the study in chapter 2 and chapter 3. The focus there is on this new identity. And so we have things that are introduced, for example, in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. We're told that at the instant that we trusted Christ, we were made alive together with Christ. We were raised up together and seated together with him him in the heavenlies at the right hand of the father so at the instant you trusted christ legally you're identified with christ and you are positionally seated with him at the right hand of the father in heaven you can't get more exalted than that as a creature and that is our new identity As we go through our study in Ephesians 2, we have seen that God created a new man between Jew and Gentile. Now there's a new entity that's referred to as a new man in Ephesians uh, 2.15. He created in himself one new man from the two. And then in verse uh, 15, it also describes him as a a new body. Our Ephesians 2.16, he reconciled them both to God in one body. And then we are being made as a holy temple in Ephesians 2, uh, 21 and 22. We're referred to in other passages of Scripture as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, as the royal priesthood and family of God. And we are thus this new household that God has created from the day of Pentecost. So this is distinctive to this age. And it did not occur to any believer in the Old Testament. So we have privileges because of our position in Christ that Noah never experienced, Abraham never experienced, never had it, David never had it, Moses never had it. No one in the Old Testament had this, but you and I have this. That's why the Gospels refer to John as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, because, and he's greatest because he saw the fulfillment of the prophecies in the coming of Christ. But he is not as great as the least in the church age. That's who we are. Ephesians 4, 2, and 3 begin to tell us what should be characteristic of this worthy walk. It begins with the phrase, with all lowliness and gentleness in the New King James. The word that is translated as lowliness is in some translations translated as humility. 
difficult for a lot of people to understand humility, especially if you use a dictionary which just says it's the quality of humbleness. And most people have a tr- trouble with humbleness. It's really bad practice to define a word with its word, with itself. You know, you run into the same problem when it talks about love. Love is an emotion. Well, not biblically, it's not. It's a mental attitude. It's not an emotion. It doesn't have anything to do with how we feel. So we have to take time to understand these words because we're so self-absorbed and so focused on making sure that we have our rights observed and recognized that that we want to assert ourselves in any time that you feel like you may be taken advantage of. You can go to any number of places in Houston and find some course on assertiveness training. And yet that mentality runs counter to what, what the Scripture says. So it's translated with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And then it's verse 3 begins, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we have these four terms that are tough for us to deal with, lowliness, gentleness, love, and unity. Everybody wants to talk about unity, but the only way that humans attempt to achieve unity is to sacrifice everything that is distinctive. That is the opposite of what the Scripture says. It is the unity of the faith. It is not at the expense of any doctrine, but on the basis of what the Word of God reveals. You can't have unity if people are making things up about what the Bible means in every other chapter, which is standard today. So we have to look at these words, and part of what we have to look at is some of these little words. There was a very well-known Greek professor at Dallas Seminary. He actually was pretty much a generation before me. His his last year was my first year. His name was uh, S. Lewis Johnson. And he used to say, the big words are important, but it's extremely important to pay attention to the connective words and the little words because it's so often we think we know what they mean and we don't, and we have to take time to understand them. And so this word with, what exactly does that mean? Now, I can hear you saying, well, I know what with means. Do you really? Here's a list from the... Concise Oxford English Dictionary. Ten different nuances to the word with. So which one is it? Well, see, that's where we need to take some time. Now, I'm not going to read through all of these, but the pri- but they're listed, and some of you may not know this, they're listed in the order of their most frequent uses. So the first is the most frequent meaning, the second is the second most frequent meaning, and so on down the line. So the first one is something that accompanies something else, and, and I'll just tell you right now, that's pretty much what we have here. But in Greek, it's the preposition meta. And you have this twice in this verse. It is with all lowliness and then with long suffering. And so it has a basically very close nuance in each of those two uses. But when you look at the last phrase, bearing with one another in love, that with isn't in the original. 
but it comes it's sort of loaded into the participle that's used there so we'll we'll get there so this is this is uh the first word here and uh the greek lexicon indicates that it, it it often shows something where two things are associated closely together they take place along with or in accompanying with and it one example is of states of mind and so that's what we have here is a state of mind a mental attitude the mental attitude of humility and frequently what we discover if we do a search through where these words are used is in a number of places these two words are used together to express this particular virtue. The first word that is translated lowliness is the Greek word uh, tapenai frasune. Now frasune has to do with, with a mental attitude and it's the mental attitude of lowliness. But it is a recognition. We have to understand a lot of these words by their opposite. It is the opposite of self-exaltation. So it is not thinking of yourself more lowly than you ought to or more highly than you ought to. It's to have an accurate understanding of who you are. And that's clearly what, what's, what Scripture teaches. So it's not some sort of self-abasement. It is not the idea of going along and wear, dressing down or whatever you may think that it means. It doesn't mean to be somebody's doormat. It has the idea of recognizing who you are. And we're going to have a couple of great biblical examples of what this means. The other word is prouse. It can be translated as gentle, which is the dominant way in which it's translated, or humble or considerate. Meek is also a major way in which it's translated. Passages like the meek shall inherit the earth. People wonder, what in the world does that mean? Now, this is really important to understand, as we'll see in the case of Moses, now, most of you thought Moses was just a doormat. Just let all those three million uh, Israelites stomp all over him all the time in every sort of case. But Scripture says he was the most meek or humble man in, in the world at that time, in the Old Testament. He's the meekest. But see, that doesn't mean that he's letting everybody walk all over him, take advantage of him or anything else. So, see, we have to understand this context because that's what is so important if we're going to see this develop in our own uh, in our own lives. A couple of verses we ought to look at that are tangential to this that help us sort of fill in all of the various uh, aspects and nuances of it. Colossians three twelve. Therefore, as the choice ones of God, set apart to God. And beloved. Now you notice I have retranslated this that instead of the elect of God, as we've studied the word elect, it means choice ones, not chosen ones. And it is translated that way in a number of other passages. And it refers to the fact that they have certain qualities that make them choice or excellent. And the quality that we have that makes us excellent is that when we trust in Christ as Savior, 
then we are given, imputed the righteousness of Christ. And that makes us qualified, not anything that we do on our own. So we become the choice ones of God. And then you have the word holy, which is just one of those religious words people have a hard time with. And the basic root meaning of the word holy is to be set apart to the service of God. So when we're called saints, which is based on that same word, it's emphasizing the fact that in our salvation, by virtue of our position in Christ, we are positionally set apart to the service of God. And a lot of Christians spend most of their lives struggling with whether or not they really want to be set apart to the service of God. And there are others who just say, well, I'm just glad I'm going to heaven and I don't have to do anything else. But we have been set apart to the service of God for a purpose. We have been set apart to serve him. That's why part of our calling, being the called, is to be in service to God. So we are the choice ones set apart to God and beloved. And then comes the command to put on tender mercies, and that means compassion, genuine compassion, not the pseudo-compassion of liberal guilt. It is the genuine compassion and care as an expression of love. That's Mercy is close to that meaning. It is the application of love to specific situations. Kindness, and both of these are parts of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And we'll get there as we go through the list. Humility, this is Going, this is our word here, humility, which is toponyphrosune, uh, meekness. Or it, the first one is a little different variant. It, I think the first one, the first one is is the prautes, and the second one is humility. I didn't put that on the slide. And long suffering. Notice it's a command. Now, the reason I want to emphasize this is the command is that positionally we have we have put on Christ, positionally. How do we know that? Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, that's, that's very important to understand that. We go back to our diagram. We have the eternal realities on the left, temporal realities on the right, And here is this white circle, the circle of light. And at the instant of salvation, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean the the Holy Spirit baptizes us. The Greek grammar is very precise. Remember what John the Baptist said? The one who comes after me, he will baptize you by the Spirit. So that means Christ will baptize you by using the Holy Spirit to identify you with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So that is what is being described in Galatians, that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So positionally, we have put on Christ. We are in him. But experientially, in terms of our walk by the Spirit, we are to also put on Christ. So there's two aspects to this. One, it is our identity, but number two, it has to be part of our reality, 
our experience. That is the process of spiritual growth and maturity as God the Holy Spirit works in us. What does it mean to put on Christ? What do I do to make that happen? Which is a good question. And I think the answer it comes from that important passage in Galatians, Galatians 5, 17 down to 25, where the basic command is to walk by means of the Spirit. Then there's a description of the conflict between the Spirit and the flesh or the sin nature. Then a description of the works of the sin nature. And then we have the fruit of the Spirit. And notice in Galatians 5.24, it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It's singular because all of these different attributes are the fruit of the Spirit. They're the character of Christ. And by putting on Christ, it's just another way of looking at growing spiritually where as we walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is manifesting all of these attributes in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, against which there is no law. So those are all part. They're, they're all different facets of the same character. So it's not like Christ is producing a little bit of this this week and a little bit of that next week and a little bit more next week, and then, then we get part of one another diluted because we're not walking by the Spirit. It's, it's, it's a complex that expresses the uh, shift in our character. It is putting on the new man, as we'll see when we get into Ephesians 4 later on. So Colossians 3.12 says we are to put on Christ. So you could ask the question, what would the question be? How do we do it? The next verse gives us a participle of means telling us how to do it by putting up with one another. That's what bearing with one another means. That's a nice way to put it. But anybody who lives closely with other people is aware of the fact that it's sometimes you just have to put up with their sin nature. I often tell people who are coming to me uh, for counsel in a, uh, they hope to get married, I say, well, do you really understand the sin nature of the other person? Now, you never will fully, I know that, but do you understand their their the trends of their sin nature, because if you're both walking according to your sin nature, your sin natures better be compatible, or you're going to be in divorce court in about 30 seconds. So you have to be able to put up with one another when you're both out of fellowship and you're both letting your sin nature have its way. So that's what this is talking about. We have to sometimes put up with one another. And that's what, it's the same word that Paul uses over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when it says that love bears all things. It puts up with a lot, but that's what love does. Just think about God. He puts up with a lot from us. I know he puts up with a lot from me, probably puts up with even more from you. I don't know. So we are to put up with one another, and then the next participle is by forgiving one another. Now, that's where it really gets hard. Peter thought he was doing a good job when Jesus said, well, you need to forgive one another, and Peter said, oh, we forgive one another seven times, and Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. In other words, infinitively, you don't stop. It, It doesn't have a small qualifier on it. So we are to... 
uh, put on Christ, we do that by bearing or putting up with one another and by forgiving one another. And then Paul says, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now think about this. Maybe I ought to just say go home and reflect upon it and let's bow our heads and close in prayer and not deal with this too much. Okay. Um, We are to forgive one another and look at the standard. It's an impossible standard, isn't it? To forgive one another as Christ forgave you. What this requires is that a lifetime of reflecting upon and learning about how Christ has forgiven you. What was involved in that? Well, first of all, the sin had to be paid for, and he had to go through excruciating agony physically on the cross. And then for three hours he went through excruciating agony spiritually as he was uh, legally, forensically separated from God the Father when he bore in his own body on the tree our sin. That's what it means to forgive, and that's how he forgave us, and that is our standard. It's not, well, you know, my my cousin or my brother or my mother, they're very forgiving. I just can't quite be that good. Well, they're not the standard. The standard is Christ, and so that is an extremely high standard. But I want you to look at another passage. We're going to see this when we get to the end of chapter 4. And Paul there is talking about the things that that we need to do or not to do in order to not grieve the Spirit. And he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. That's that word again, and it means compassion or the exercise of mercy to those who may not deserve it. By forgiving, we have the same kind of word there that we have over in Colossians uh, 2.13. And the word there in both passages is a word I have at the bottom of the screen. It's charizomai. The Greek noun is charis. That's the word for grace. So here it means to be graciously forgiving to one another. It's emphasizing the, the, the motivation of the forgiveness, whereas the other word that's used for forgiveness is emphasizing the act. This is emphasizing that which motivates the act, and it is the idea of being gracious even though they don't deserve it by forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Uh Uh-oh, there's another comparison. This time it's God that we're compared to. So we forgive as Christ forgave, and now we forgive as God forgave. It's impossible. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit, because only God the Holy Spirit can produce that in our lives as we walk by the Spirit and study the Word. And over time, God the Holy Spirit will produce these changes in us. We can't do it ourselves. We're not even supposed to try to do it ourselves because we can't. The sin nature cannot produce the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can do that. So Ephesians 5.1 goes on to say that that chapter division is at a bad place. We're to be kind to one another by forgiving one another, even as Christ, it, God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. See, it's another high standard. He, Paul wants us to understand this is impossible. This is only going to uh, come, come about if we're walking by the Spirit. 
And then in 5.2, he says, and walk in love. Conduct your lives on the basis of love as Christ also loved us. There's that comparison again. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And where does that take us? takes us back to John 13, 34, and 35. Actually, the Old Testament commandment from Leviticus that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves gives us a much lower standard. That's quoted in Galatians 5.14, that we are to love one another as Christ loved us. Then two verses later, it's walked by the Spirit, and then by the time we get down to verse 22, it's love is the first fruit of the Spirit. So the emphasis all through Scripture is we just can't do this on our own. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, not like your neighbor, but as I have loved you. That's the standard. So this implies several things. First of all, it implies the fact that we're taking time to read the Scriptures to come to fully understand how Christ loved us. We go to passages like John 3.16, that God loved us in such a way. This is the example of God's love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us. So this is how Christ loved us, and that's the standard, that we are to love one another. And all of this is just background for further understanding how these Hearts fit together, the, the thinking uh, in a being humble, thinking in a uh, pattern of humility and gentleness, and which has uh, another sense to it. We'll get to that in just a minute. Colossians 3.10 says, And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, so that we put the new man on, now we are also to put on the new man, and here we are, we, because we have put on the new man, it is renewed according to knowledge. That is the knowledge of Scripture. That's why we keep emphasizing the importance for every believer that we all need to be reading through the Scripture over and over and over again, immersing ourselves in Scripture. Now, a lot of that depends on your schedule and everything like that, but this is, this is what God the Holy Spirit uses, the tool he uses to reshape us. And we have to be reminded of these things. This is the purpose of Bible class so that we can dig deeper into all of these things. Romans thirteen fourteen. but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, that is the sin nature, to fulfill its lust. And then we have this other word, that was tapanifrasune, and we have this other word, praus or prautes, which is translated gentle or gentleness, humility, considerateness, meekness, and it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the, this is the fruit of the Spirit. All of these are being worked on together. Now, we have two great examples in Scripture of humility. The first is from the Old Testament. It's Moses. And the verse is Numbers 12.3. If you go back to 12.1, you discover 
that uh, his dear sister and brother Miriam have joined together in a conspiracy against him because they're jealous of the fact that he has remarried and he's just doing all of these things and he has more authority than they do, and that's really the problem. And so after describing this circumstance, the verse 3 is a parenthesis that God the Holy Spirit is giving him this information, and Moses is writing it down, but this is from God. Now the man Moses was very humble. The Hebrews translated into the Septuagint with the word tapani frasune means humility. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. What does that mean? We'll get there. I'll give you a hint. It means he is under the authority of God, and the contrast is Miriam and Aaron are in rebellion against the authority of God. That no matter how rebellious the Israelites got, got, Whenever there's the rebellion of Korah and the priests and two or three others, whenever that happens, what does Moses do? He goes to the Lord in prayer. He is submissive to the will and the plan of God. That's the essence of humility is being properly related to the authority of God and knowing who we are and knowing our role. The second example is Jesus. In Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's the context? See, it's real easy to take these verses out of context. The context has been Jesus fights with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and their burden of legalism that they are placing on everybody. And they just were putting all of these additional requirements on everyone. The Mosaic Law has 513 commandments. What they did as the religious leaders after the return from Babylon was they took each one of those and said, so in order to not break the Sabbath, for example, we have to come up with a bunch of rules that will keep us from even getting close to violating the Sabbath law. And so they would add an additional rule. So this is called putting a, putting a fence around the law. And then later on, after the first century, they put the, a, another fence is erected around the law. So it's just a lot of man-made rules. And so Jesus is contrasting himself and grace to the legalism of the Pharisees. If you go to them, they're going to put a burden on you. But if you come to me, I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. That was the language the rabbis used in talking about the law. It was a yoke. And so were you under this rabbi, you had that rabbi's yoke. If you were under that rabbi, that rabbi's yoke. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly. There's our two words used together, gentle and lowly. He is uh, meek and lowly. Um, he, that's the first word is praus, and the second word lowly is tapani frasune. Uh, so that, that's the idea. He is, he is gentle. Now, the, this word really needs to be understood in light of the context in which it is found. 
you go back to Aristotle, and Aristotle talked about the fact that that, that humility was was in between uh, being harsh and just being rolled over. Basically, it's in the middle, and and it has the idea of not being uh, not being harsh, not responding to somebody in, with irritability or impatience. Uh, and it is being understanding and uh, careful with them, uh, depending on who they are. And so, and Tapani Frasune, we'll look at that in a minute, that's Jesus' humility, and that means he is totally submissive to the authority of the Father. Now, we always get this picture from liberals who never know how to handle the Bible correctly, and they always talk about Jesus meek and mild but they can't really figure out what to do with these passages like John 2.14. This happens the first time he went to Jerusalem for Passover. He goes into the temple, and he found in the temple those who sold auction and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And so what he did was he wove together a whip, and he began to whip them and turn the tables over and chase them out of the temple because he was cleansing the table. Now, that's not Jesus meek and mild. So the liberals will take their, their little razor blade and cut this verse out because it doesn't fit their pusillanimous view of Jesus. At the end of his ministry, just before the crucifixion, in that time period between the entry into Jerusalem and the crucifixion, he goes to the temple and he goes through these series of, of interrogations by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the lawyers. And he said, as Scripture says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves." Once he does that, and he gets rid of the people who are abusing the poor, the lame, the crippled, they come to him, and he heals them. The ultimate understanding, the ultimate illustration of humility is in Philippians 2. We'll end with this this morning. Paul is challenging, exhorting the Philippians, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's how we understand what humility is. It is the lack of self-absorption. It's the attitude that it's really not all about me, it's about you serving one another. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's the opposite of humility. But in lowliness of mind, that's Tapani Frasune here, let each esteem others better than himself. So that's a good way to understand what humility is. But the best example is given in the next paragraph, and that is the paragraph that expresses what Jesus did at the cross. And verse 8 states, And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself. He submitted himself to the authority of God at no matter what it might cost him to do the right thing. That's what humility is. It is not being a doormat. It is being submissive to the will and plan of God. 
It is thinking accurately about ourselves, not in an inflated sense, not being filled with selfish ambition and conceit, but to understand that we have been called, this calling we have, this exalted position, is to serve the Lord. And to serve the Lord, we have to first learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Too many churches, you have people walk in the back door, and I was told this as a young pastor. Somebody said, oh, pastor, you want people, you want to grow this church as soon as somebody comes to church, you need to give them a responsibility. And I said, no, I don't. I don't know anything about them. I don't know if they know the word. I don't know if they walk with the Lord. They don't know anything about the word. They need to sit under my ministry and really absorb the teaching for at least two years before I give them anything to do. Because you can't just give a newborn baby something to do or they'll mess it up. What happens as a result of Jesus humbling himself? God is the one who exalts him. See, we are not to exalt ourselves. We are to humble ourselves and let God exalt us in due time. Jesus, because of the crucifixion, is exalted by God. Therefore, God also has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. Christ died on the cross for our sins. That's the picture of humility, that we are to serve the Lord as the Lord Jesus Christ did, even though he was perfectly God. He did not look at it as something to make an issue of, and he served the Lord. Scripture teaches the only way to salvation is for us to recognize that Christ did everything, and we simply accept it and believe it with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things. It is difficult for us as human beings with an arrogance in nature to truly understand concepts like humility, gentleness in this sense, to understand what it means to love one another and what it means to forgive one another and to have a unity of the faith. But, Father, as we probe these verses, help us to understand and to conceptualize what this means. And we pray that as we study these things, that God the Holy Spirit would use it to produce in us this fruit. We know it doesn't come quickly. It comes in stages and incrementally. But as we study, as we grow, as we walk with you, God the Holy Spirit is the one who takes your word and produces that growth and that fruit. And we pray that we might see that. And, Father, we pray for any who may be listening today that's never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would come to understand that we do not earn our salvation. It doesn't come because we forgive one another, because we're humble. It comes because Christ humbled himself and paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And all that is left for us to do is to trust him. And the instant we form those thoughts in our mind that Christ is indeed our Savior, the one who died for us, at that instant you know that we have trusted him and we are made alive again. We are born again and we have new life. So, Father, we pray that any who are listening that have never trusted Christ would understand it in a very clear way.
And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.